Yes, we're live. All right, so uh, welcome everyone to the Our City, Our Home Oversight Committee. Uh, it is March 23rd, 2023, and we are gonna call this meeting to order. Secretary Hall. Member Catalano. Here, good morning. Member Cunningham-Denning. Absent, Vice Chair D'Antonio. Absent, Member Friedenbach. Here. Officer Ledbetter. Absent, Chair Williams. Here. All right, so we do not have quorum at this time, but I know our members are on their way. This is our first in-person meeting uh, ever <laughs> since we formed as a committee. So I know we're all excited to be back in person. And I just see Vice Chair D'Antonio has joined us. Welcome. Yeah, you're right here. All right, so now we'll go into our Ohlone uh, land acknowledgement. Is that um, a packet? Is it a packet? Is it this one? Oh, perfect. All right, so for our uh, Ramatush Ohlone land acknowledgement, we acknowledge that we are on the unceded ancestral homeland of the Ramatush Ohlone, who are the original inhabitants of the San Francisco Peninsula. As the indigenous stewards of this land and in accordance with their traditions, the Ramatush Ohlone have never ceded, lost, nor forgotten their responsibilities as the caretakers of this place, as well as for all peoples who reside in their traditional territory. As guests, we recognize that we benefit from living and working on their traditional homeland. We wish to pay our respects by acknowledging the ancestors, elders, and relatives of the Ramatush community and by affirming their sovereign rights as First Peoples. Thank you. All right. So now we're going to move into uh, public comment on items that are not on the agenda. Is there any public comment? Members of the public who wish to provide public comment in person, please step up to the podium now. There are no in-person public comments. Members of the public who wish to find phone conference, please call 415-665-0001, sorry, 415-655-0001, access code 2495-548-4503. The password is 1234. If you haven't already done so, please dial star three to line up to speak. A system prompt will indicate you have raised your hand. Please wait until the system indicates you have been unmuted and you may begin your comments. Please note that you have two minutes. Moderator, do we have any public comments on the phone? There are no public comments on the phone. So there, so this concludes the public comment section for the, this agenda item. Thank you, Secretary Hom. All right, with that, we'll move to um, item number three, which is approval and possible modification of the meeting minutes from January 26, 2023, and February 23rd, 2023. Is there a motion? Wait, okay. <laughs> I'm like, can we actually vote on anything, though, since we don't have quorum? We need five people. Oh, we do not have quorum yet. I apologize. So we need five. So we will move past that item, and we'll go to item number four, which is a presentation of the third quarter. Uh, revenue picture and forecast um, with discussion and possible action from the committee. Um, there's a presentation from the controller's office, so I believe I'm welcoming Carol uh, to join us. Thank you. Welcome. Good morning. Yes, we'll project a slide. One second. We've been asked to um, share our camera, so just one second. Thank you. Carol Liu, um, Citywide Revenue Manager in the Controller's Office. Um, thanks for having me here today. Um, I'm going to present an update on the Spring 23 revenue picture. Um, next slide. Great. 
Um, so just as an overview, um, business tax, um, as I've said every single time, is volatile, and um, this forecast represents our best thinking um, at this moment in time. And like every other forecast, um, it's it changes every single time. And so um, we're presenting our best thinking based on what we've seen so far and what we'll, we'll, what we'll assume for the March five-year update, which we're working on right now. Um, to get to the punchline, I guess, the, um, the tax is stronger than we had uh, forecasted prior, but still less than what was budgeted. Um, and it's strong by, it's uh, better by 15 to 25 million every single year um, in the current year and in the future years. Um, within the larger context of our uh, history of projections, um, the forecast is still low and I'll have a slide to kind of show that. Um, so this improvement doesn't really sustain service levels that have already been assumed in prior spending plans, but it is a little bit better than before. Um, and as always, there's significant risk to the forecast. Um, we're not forecasting a recession. We're, we're assuming slow growth in our underlying tax base, but there's um, a lot out there that we don't know. Um, next slide, please. Um, so there's a lot of numbers on this, um, and just to orient you to this um, table, so each column starting from left to right is um, a forecast. So um, the first left is the first time we did a full forecast, November 2020 five-year plan. Then the next column is March and on and on. So the rightmost, not the actual column, but the second to uh, rightmost column is our latest forecast. And you'll see at the bottom, um, there's two circles. So the first circle is in the first forecast, our five-year average was about $370 million per year. That was kind of where we, where this committee um, based its decision-making around. And then now the last circle, you'll see that our five-year average forecast is closer to 200. Uh, or sorry, $320 million. Um, so it's fallen, you can see, every single year on average. Um, so it, it looked kind of like this. Um, the, the only difference is that um, in the fall of last year, we kind of overshot below, and now we're correcting to go higher a little bit. Um, another point you can see in this um, table is you can compare our forecast to actuals. Um, and so just kind of reading across for fiscal year 21-22, the first time we forecasted this, we thought we'd get 352.9 million, then we downgraded that to 335.6, then we downgraded that to 296.2, then 294.3, and where we actually landed was 273.8. So um, we got the trajectory right, but we didn't quite get to the right level of actuals. Um, next slide, please. So this next picture just zooms in into a corner of that table, um, and I'm just looking at the forecast we've done in this fiscal year. So um, the leftmost column, the five-year March 2022 column, um, that is the forecast in which the budget was based on. So the numbers in green, those are the budget numbers for 22, 23, and 23, 24. 
Um, the next column shows our forecast that I presented um, in November, and then the column after that, March 2023 forecast, that's where we think we are. And so the column, the next two columns show the changes. It's um, showing that we're doing better um, from prior, but still less than budget. So um, in 22, 23, just reading across the rows, um, you can see where we're 2.8, we think we're gonna be $2.8 um, million below budget. Um, in the budget year, we think we're gonna be $27 million below budget. And the year after that, $36 million below budget. Um, so why these changes? Um, so we, since um, the November forecast, we've gotten another quarter of cash receipts and um, a handful of filings to date. Um, we don't think there's major changes in the overall economic outlook, but the cash to date is a, is a lot higher than we thought it would be. And so we've kind of updated that throughout the modeling. Um, the major assumptions from the November forecast still remain. We're still assuming that persistent telecommuting has a net effect of about 40% um, on our gross receipts attributable to San Francisco, um, that there's slow and no growth in our tax base um, in the early years of our forecast, and then it uh, goes back to about inflation um, by the time we get to the out years. Um, the next slide, please. Um, so there are risks to this forecast. Um, one is cyclical, the other structural. Um, where we are in the business cycle, we're not assuming a recession, but, um, and it, according to um, a revenue forecasting conference that we hosted with many um, economists, they kind of, at that point, were thinking that things were okay in the economy, that there was a lot of kind of media discussion about layoffs, but that, um, in tech layoffs, but that there wasn't so much impact locally. That was, that was mid-February. Um, and also before all of this um, Silicon Valley Bank stuff happening. Um, structurally, um, we're already, the forecast already tries to take into account um, increased telecommuting levels, like I explained earlier. Um, but of course, predicting how the world is going to change and what the impact of that is, I mean, inevitably, we're going to not get it right. Um, we're just going to have to update our forecast every time. Um, and then just a reminder, um, this business, this tax is volatile because there's a small population of payers. Um, and so the business decisions of like a handful of firms can really swing this source. Um, and then finally, this fund is supported by this one single source. And so it kind of increases its exposure to um, changes relative to other funds. Um, next slide. So um, in closing or next steps, so timeline-wise, we're working on our March forecast. It's, um, it's a forecast that's shared between our office, the mayor's office, and the board of supervisors, and we'll issue that on March 31st, 2023. Um, in May, our office issues a nine-month report, and that's a look at the 22-23 um, position where we are, and then um, for June 1st, the mayor proposes their budget, and then in um, July, and then that kicks off the board phase in June and July, the board review the budget. Um, 
The current year, so just kind of to summarize, the current year is expected to close closer to budget. Um, we'll need to monitor revenue really closely and work with departments to make slight reductions to their expenditure budgets. Um, and then the upcoming budget years will need to be revised based on the latest revenue projection. Um, importantly, there is positive news versus the prior projection, but it's still lower to, than the spending plans that were adopted, both in the budget as well as from two cycles ago. Um, yeah, I think that's it. Happy to take any questions. Thank you so much, uh, Carol. Um, do we have public comment on this item? Would you like me to move into public comment for this yeah, item? Yeah, we'll take public. Members of the public who, who wish to provide public comment in person, please come up to the podium now. For the record, there are no in-person public comments. Members of the public who wish to provide public comment over the phone, please call 415-655-0001, access code 2495 meeting password code is 123. If you haven't already done so, please dial star 3 to line up to speak. A system prompt will indicate you have raised your hand. Please wait until the system indicates you have been unmuted and you may begin your comments. Please note that you have two minutes. Moderator, do we have any public comments on the phone? She's typing one second. Oh. And Carol, you can stay with us because we're going to have committee discussion after public comment. Yeah, I'm, she's going to stay. Moderator, do we have any public comments? There are no public comments for this agenda item. Thank you, Secretary Hallman. Carol, if you could come back up and, and join us. I know we may have some questions. So if I don't have a way to see the queue on my screen. Is Secretary Hallman, is there a way to see who has their hand raised? Or do I just have to look? Do we do that on the screen? Is this on the screen? This is our first time in public <laughs> person. Is there anything to control the? I guess just raise your hand <laughs> the old-fashioned way. So if anyone has, so uh, Member Catalano. Thank you, Chair Williams, and thank you, Carol. Um, oh. I'm sorry, please speak into your mic. That would help, wouldn't it? Um, thank you, Carol, for that presentation. And obviously, we don't know what's going to happen um, with what's been going on with SVB and some of the fallout there. But I'm curious if that sounds like that didn't figure into this analysis and any sort of thoughts on the relationship between that kind of part of the banking sector and the, the handful of firms that you described that really drive some of the fund. Um, yeah, thanks for that question. Um, you're right that this forecast came before all of that happened. Um, so it doesn't, there's not really any factoring into the forecast. Um, I mean, I think, I don't know that the, I haven't done, a, we haven't done a lot of thinking about how the banking sector might impact this forecast. But one way could be if some of the uh, kind of start businesses that are banking with um, these kinds of banks aren't are not able to 
pay folks out, then there could be some impact. But um, I don't know. We haven't. It's not baked into this forecast. All the ramifications. Um, <clears throat> since the uh, revenue is gross receipts, um, why does telecommuting have such an impact? I'm just trying to understand that better. I know we talked about it before, but it's a little bit unclear. Yeah, thanks. Thanks for the question. Um, so it has to do with the way our gross receipts tax is set up and um, trying to figure out how much of gross receipts is related to activity within San Francisco. So um, for some businesses, for many businesses, like bigger businesses, um, it's hard to figure out how to attribute your all of your earnings to one location. And so the way they do that is the way you can do, at, do that through our tax code is through... Um, taking your payroll, your share of San Francisco payroll versus your worldwide payroll, and just doing some fractions. So it's the apportionment factor. So if someone's telecommuting um, and they work for an office downtown, um, even though they're living outside the city, shouldn't that count towards the gross receipts? Under... Our payroll, under our gross receipts tax, they, they wouldn't necessarily, if they're, um, if the way the business's taxes, if they're using an apportionment factor. So if, if the business was using this apportionment factor, and say you lived in the East Bay and you used to commute into the city, but now you work uh, from your home in the East Bay 60% of the time, then, then you could count a lesser portion of your work towards being in San Francisco. So that's how it would impact our gross receipts tax. Okay. And um, businesses, some some small number of businesses were doing this even before the pandemic. There's like a, you can look at people's IP logins and kind of track that and audit it. Okay. Um, Thank you. I guess my question is more on, um, do you know how many companies or firms pay in and then do we have a list of the companies that do and are we looking at like how long the leases are that they've signed here in San Francisco like is that something like that you you all have been looking at and can we get that data um thanks for the question um so there's about 350 to 400 payers um to this source um in terms of whether this can be provided we can't provide ta confidential taxpayer information. Um, that's not something we can share. Um, that's, it's actually something the tax collector, like only with our office, we have an agreement that we can share, but it's not something that we uh, ever really share publicly. Um, and then whether we're looking at um, the impact of their leases, there is a separate analysis um, for our property tax base, um, looking lease by lease, building by building, or the biggest leases and when they're expiring. Um, and that kind of informs um, our understanding of when um, commercial property values might drop and how quickly they would drop. Um, that doesn't factor directly into the business tax, though. We're not using that for this thing. Okay. Thank you. Any more um, questions from the committee or comments? I just want to thank you, Carol, and I remember our last conversation about just sort of the forecasting and really being worried that things would kind of get worse before they would get better. And so, um, yeah, I would lean on the side of caution just seeing what's, you know, 
what's kind of happening currently in our streets and with our businesses. But thank you. Thank you so much. Thanks so much. Really thank helpful. You. It was good news too. Better thank than you. it would have been. <laughs> <laughs> thank you. All right, so now we'll get into item number five, which is a presentation of the findings from a participatory research that informed the Department of Homelessness. And I'm oh, sorry, I'm sorry. Chair Williams. Uh, we, there are a couple more slides on this presentation. Oh. The departments. Uh, from the controller's office? From the departments, from DPH and HSH. Yeah, that's what I'm going to right now. I thought you were going to five. I'm, I'm still on four. Okay, because four only shows the controller's office. Oh, here. On your annotated agenda. Oh, okay. Sorry. That's interesting. Okay, so now are we going to... Um, if you'd like to see the impact of what Carol... Oh, okay, I see what you're doing. Okay, so no worries. All oh, right. Yeah. Yeah, it's different from the here, printed here agenda. I'll tell that to you. Perfect. So now we're going to move to um, HSH, um, and I believe uh, Director uh, Simmons is here to present to us. So thank you. Sorry, the annotated and this is... Good morning, committee members. Noelle Simmons, Chief Deputy Director at HSH. Jesse, do you have the ability to tee the slide up? Okay, this is fine. So just we'll tick through these slides uh, quickly, committee members. What this is that you're looking at is that we have one slide for each of the major spending categories that are administered by HSH. So here we're looking at permanent housing for adults. And on the top row there, we've got um, uses. So this is basically our expenditure budget over several fiscal years for adult housing as it currently stands today. And then in the sources section underneath the green bar, you see the updated OCO revenue projections that Carol just presented. Um, and then a second line for what's called one-time sources. These are um, you know, carry forward year-end spending balances, reserve balances uh, available within the Prop C budget for adult housing. That adds up to the total available revenues. And then the bottom line is really where I want to direct your attention in each of these slides, which is the projected surplus or shortfall in each of the future fiscal years. And so what you can see here is that while we do have improvement in the Prop C revenues since our November projection, as we forecast out over the longer term, we still see that by fiscal year 26-27 within the adult housing budget, we start to have a shortfall which is more pronounced by fiscal year 27-28. So that negative $8.2 million you see there means that if our expenditures budget remained as it is currently and revenues remained as currently projected, we would be short in this section of the fund um, just a few years out from now. Let's go ahead and go to the next slide, Jesse. So in, in both of the next two slides that we'll tee up here momentarily, we'll be looking at permanent housing for Tay and for families. And those are the two buckets where uh, things actually look a little bit better given our current forecast. So in the Tay permanent housing slide, what you'll see in just a moment is that 
as well as the family housing slide, we project to have a surplus uh, in each year of the projection given the updated revenue figures. I think we lost the slide. <clears throat> And the reason that you will see that um, is because the department has been successful within the Tay bucket in leveraging home key dollars from the state. So although we have purchased a couple of Tay buildings over the, the last year, um, we didn't have to draw down on Prop C because we were successful in competing for state dollars. So that leaves us with a healthy surplus in the Tay housing bucket. Um, of $15 million next year and extending out to $54 millions in, in, in fiscal year 27-28, although, of course, we do anticipate buying additional buildings between now and then, which would draw down on the surplus. Um, similar story with the family housing bucket, um, robust surpluses in every year of the projection to the tune of $12 million next year and up to $40 million by fiscal year 27-28. Same explanation, you know, we purchased 200 units of family housing in the form of city gardens this year, but again, we're successful in competing for state dollars and tapped those first in order to make our local dollars uh, last longer. Sorry for the technical difficulties here. I'll just keep going with the verbal presentation and then we can come back and look at slides during the question and answer phase. So that's the housing bucket. Uh, the next major bucket of funding within OCO that HSH administers is uh, shelter. And um, what you would see if you were to look at the shelter projection is that again, we look fine for the next two year budget cycle. We have a projected surplus of $6 million in year one and nearly $3 million in year two. But by fiscal year 25-26, we start to see shortfalls in the shelter fund um, up to reaching about $4.7 million in shortfall by fiscal year 27-28. And then finally, um, the prevention bucket is the last area of major investment, and this is the area where we are tightest in our projection. So as the committee is well aware, many of um, the funds within the prevention bucket were one time in nature, particularly for problem solving investments. And so we have been drawing down on that one time funding, expending it over multiple years. That hits home really soon, even with these updated revenue projections. The forecast is showing a $9.8 million shortfall in fiscal year 24-25. So that is the problem that we will need to be most focused on addressing in the near term. Okay, we've got our slides back up again. So if anyone on the committee would like us to backtrack to some of those slides, we're happy to do so, but I'll just pause there and see if there are any questions. I think the, the, the takeaway here obviously is that while we're all really pleased with the March revenue update, um, it was a relief that things weren't worse than November. We're, we're still kind of not at the level of revenue that we projected when Prop C was originally passed and we established an expenditure budget at that higher expectation level, which the revenues are still not keeping up with. Thank you, Director Simmons. We're gonna go to uh, Member Friedenbach. Hi, thank you, Chair Williams. Um, so, 
thank you for breaking out the one time. Um, that's that's really helpful. I guess one of the questions I would have is, is there a way for us to know what portion of the surplus is ongoing versus one time? Because they're kind of like pulled together there uh, because um, I think that would be helpful for obvious reasons if we wanted to do some um, ongoing investments. Right, so I think, um you know, when you look at the rows in the sources line that are broken out, it's, it is broken out by ongoing versus one time. So those HSH one time sources um, are really the result, again, of reserves, underspending, or in some, uh, in, in frequent cases, just kind of a slower than anticipated ramp up of new services. Okay. But those dollars, you can see in this example that the one time sources start at $18.2 million in the current year and declined to zero by fiscal year 25-26, whereas the ongoing revenue level is in the row immediately above that. Yeah, that's really helpful. So, but then when you drop down there and you're looking at the 8.9, um, do, do we know how much of the 8.9 would be ongoing versus uh, one time? I'm sorry, Chair Friedenbach. Do you mean the 9.8 shortfall? I mean the four, in excuse me, the 4.9. I'm basically looking at the surplus. So the 23-24, we have a 4.9 surplus. And let's say under prevention, we wanted to, maybe we would want to put that money into one-time expenditures, or maybe, maybe we would want to hold it, or maybe we would want to invest in some ongoing um, expenditures. Um, and so just kind of trying to figure out, yeah, if we know of that 23-24 surplus, how much is ongoing and how much is one time? It's really only one time. And what you'll see, Member Friedbach, is that same $4.9 million surplus at the end of fiscal year 23-24. Then in the next column, it moves up two rows and becomes a source, a one-time source available to balance the prevention fund in fiscal year 24-25. So gotcha. that 4.9 is basically already spent in the future year. Okay. Well, prevention may not be the greatest example to look at, but maybe we could go to family housing, um, something that we've, we're a little bit more uh, flexible. So in family housing, yes, we have a lot more room in this section of the fund. Um, we're projecting a surplus at the end of the current fiscal year of $15 million. Um, again, any, any year-end fund balance becomes a one-time source in a future year. So that same $15 million shows up in fiscal year 23-24 as a source, which is helping to contribute to the overall surplus in the fund of $11.7 million that year. So. You know, the, the family housing fund is showing a surplus in every single year of the projection. Um, and by the final year that we're showing here, a $40.7 million surplus. Right. So, yes, we have room to kind of increase our expenditure budget in the near term okay. in order to, to spend down that surplus sooner rather than later, if that's your question. Yeah, yeah exactly. <coughs> that, that's definitely my question. Um, I think that would be really helpful. Um, and I think, so the same case goes for Tay. Yes. So those are basically our two categories where we have a little bit more play, it seems like, right? 
That's correct. Okay. We are, just to remind the committee, actively um, pursuing two different TAY site acquisitions. And so if those both come to fruition, which we hope they will, these numbers will change in the okay. TAY bucket. So maybe just kind of looking forward over the next month and as we're making decisions, if we could have some idea there. I know there's also um, a shortfall at the 18th Street family uh, building as well. And so wanted to maybe look at if there's a way to use the if Prop C funds would, you know, bring that to fruition and, and add some more family units. And there's probably other ideas as well that, that folks have. But um, I think, uh, you know, we just, we really, we, you know, this is a key, a key strategy is investing in youth and families and kind of the Prop C philosophy and really moving upstream so that we can kind of stave off long-term homelessness and, and that kind of stuff. So I'd love to love to think about that. Absolutely, and we're, we're aware of the shortfall in the 18th Street building. We've been having some conversations with the provider and trying to understand the nature of that shortfall. This is the same project that we have already committed $8 million from the Prop C family housing bucket to um, in the current year budget. Okay, and that was, and I remember you reporting on that. That was $8 million one time or ongoing? One time. One time. Okay, so Early that was for the, costs. the acquisition. Okay. Okay, great. Thank you so much. Okay. Um, member Catalano. Thank you, Director Simmons. Is I, What I saw from the numbers suggested that no funding is going to be placed in res, into the reserves in the upcoming years. Is that the right understanding? And are the reserves still um, held as they were, or have those been, are we drawing those down right now to cover some of the... The reserves are showing up in this display as kind of a year-end balance in the fund because we haven't, we're in cases where we haven't had to tap the reserve, those funds remain and are available as a source, presumably to program for reserves again in the following year. Thanks. Yeah. I don't believe there's any more questions from the committee. This was super helpful. Okay. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you so much, job. Director Simmons. Yeah. Um, we are now going to move to Department of Public Health. Um, do we have a representative with us? Exactly. Welcome. Hi. Good morning. I'm Emily Gibbs. I'm Deputy Finance Officer for Budget at the Department of Public Health. Might not happen. Might not have. Okay. Um, so the slide that we have is very similar. Um, although I will say we did a, something a little bit different in the way we displayed the one-time sources. Um, so instead of kind of doing a rolling balance from year to year, we just spread them over um, the next couple of years to show at what point we would exhaust those sources. Um, so we've got the updated projection um, of revenue, our spending plan, and then that set of one-time sources, which are the, the same ones um, that Director Simmons just talked about, the... Um, fund balance, the reserves, and the projected underspending, um, mostly from the ramp up of programs. Um, so for the Department of Public Health, we project that we, because of those one-time sources, will be able to uh, maintain the current expenditure plan through 23-24 uh, and 24-25, but we can begin to have a significant shortfall in 25-26. Um, of around 20 million, and then that continues to grow in the out years. So um, our one-time sources will carry us through um, the next 
two budget years at this point, and then a little bit in the third year. Oh, we have a... Yeah. <laughs> We're working on getting the slide up. I guess. <laughs> For us, we just have the one bucket. So it's a spending plan of, of approximately $100 million. Um, and our share of the, the revenue projection is coming in at around $80 million, if I'm just kind of using the rounding. So we end up with about a, a $20 million or so gap, depending on how fat, quickly, $20, $25 million, depending on how quickly the costs grow in the out years. Um, so we have a structural operating problem starting in fiscal year 25-26. And so, um, Chair Williams, can I ask? Questions? Yes, of course, yeah. Member Friedenbach. Um, God, I think I'm, I'm realizing I'm a visual learner. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, better late than never to figure out these things. Um, so, we had a considerable amount of money in the investment plan that was in acquisitions. Um, and so is that what you're referring to as um, one-time monies? Or no. So we do separate? still have a separate bucket set aside for acquisition. Okay. Um, and at this point, that has not been um, altered. So one potential choice that that's... Um, we face as we look to these out years is that is whether that acquisition bucket should be adjusted and some of this funding kind of moved into the one-time sources that we could use for the operating funds okay because it was pretty large as i recall it's about 80 million dollars right i think it's or, it's 129 million 129 million okay so and then you've got a hundred million in operating um And so, yeah. I do not, I'm sorry. <laughs> so, okay. So at this time, we're waiting for the file to come through to my computer so that I can go ahead and share the screen. So it's just going to be a minute. Thank Do you, you want to um, actually, Secretary Hom, take if there's any public comment on um, uh, Director Simmons' portion? We can just go back to public comment while we wait. It's a good idea. Members of the public who wish to provide public comment in person, please line up at the podium now. For the record, there are no in-person public comments. Members of the public who wish to provide public comment over the phone, please call 415-655-0001, access code 2495 meeting password is 1234. If you haven't already done so, please dial star, star 3 to line up to speak. A system prompt will indicate you have raised your hand. Please wait until the system indicates you have been unmuted and you may begin your comments. Please note that you have two minutes. Moderator, do we have any public comments on the phone? 
Can we take the first caller, please? So uh, it's Francisco da Costa, and uh, the people who go downtown and see what we see, you know, and then hear that it costs $80,000 a year for a tent, $32,000 for a bed, all these figures in what y'all are discussing. But when the presenters come, they are very nonchalant, you know. Monies are, you know, we have uh, uh, over $100 million that is set aside for this, that, and the other thing. Why don't y'all think about working with the private sector? When uh, somebody builds a 14-story building, or a nine-story building, or even a 10-story building, or a 15-story building, to acquire units for our seniors, to acquire units for those who are physically challenged, to acquire uh, units for the trend community. Recently, there was a, a building where the trends were living, and it caught on fire. Not, no mention about that. These agencies that come and give the presentation, whoever they are. 30 seconds remaining. They are not interested in the real, what, real situation of what is happening in San Francisco. So now even CNN is uh, calling our city the worst in the, in, the, in the entire nation because of our homelessness, leading to the tents, leading to the fentanyl. So pay attention to be giving presentations that are holistic, action. Thank you for your comment. Are there any additional comments? There are no additional comments for this item. Thank you, Secretary Hom. Um, Member Friedenbach? I think we have the, the slides ready to go now. Oh, okay. Okay, perfect. Thank you. And we apologize for the technical difficulties. So we'll go back uh, to uh, Mrs. Gibbs. Chair Williams, I do have yep. one question. Absolutely, Member Friedenbach. Um, so it's pretty difficult with behavioral health to use the dollars, obviously. I mean, the operating dollars are really expensive. Um, so the acquisition has to be paired with. And I'm just wondering if there's some thinking about um, with the new, like, CalAIM and Medi-Cal and stuff like that, if there's a way to really fully utilize, like, acquire, for example, like what the, next, the last caller just brought up, um, you know, we have, I think, just one co-op in our spending plan, um, which is basically for members of the public who don't know who that that is, it's like you basically like can buy a flat 
or rent a flat um, or an apartment and you have um, people in there in shared housing and then they're provided support services and we have several um, a lot of co-ops in San Francisco run by three different organizations that um, have been there for a long time and um, and uh, it is a, a model that's been really successful for folks with uh, behavioral health challenges and so um, and it's not as isolating and the conditions can be better like I, there's just there's a lot of positives to it there can be um, uh, and um, especially when they're like smaller not like big ones um, and uh, so what would be the possibility of using some of that acquisition dollars to buy additional co-ops and then using like CalAIM or something like that to pay for the support services, um, something like that, so that we can draw on those acquisition dollars. I, I'm really interested in trying to um, use our behavioral health dollars to have more, to diversify our housing for folks with, um, you know, um, uh, the, you know, because there's a variety of needs and some of the higher acuity folks are not being served in supportive housing and then supportive housing isn't necessary for some people who just have economic issues. They don't need supportive housing and front desk and all this stuff. They just need help with rent. So there's just like this big variety. And so I feel like with the behavioral health bucket on that end, really trying to use those resources to expand um, and diversify housing options for folks would be super helpful. Defer to Kelly. <laughs> Welcome, I'm Director Kirkpatrick. Hi, members of the committee. Good to see you in person. Um, Kelly Kirkpatrick, Director of Operations and Admin for Mental Health SF at DPH. Um, as relates to kind of our um, expansion of residential care and treatment, of which Prop C funds about $30 million worth of operating funding a year to fund um, about 400 additional residential care and treatment beds. As our bed dashboard shows, and I'm happy to pull it up for you all to kind of just reorient to what we have already opened and what we have in the pipeline. We do have, um, um, we've opened almost, I think, um, 300 of our beds with plans to get, or get to the 300 this year. Um, and then we have plans for our remaining beds, which I can show you, um, with buildings related to them. So my point is that we've opened a lot of the operating funding with um, contracted beds, but our goal is to acquire buildings in county to kind of relocate those beds or locate them in county. So the beds are open, they're operating, or we have plans for many of them. Um, and so depending on kind of the prioritization of um, funding. Um, you know, I, I recognize the importance of the co-ops, but we do really have a full plan for the funding that we do have right now. I will say that we are also exploring and leveraging all state funding available for these building acquisitions that are available through the state. So there's um, buckets of kind of, I forget what the acronyms stand for. The state has very long acronyms for things. There's one called B-CHIP um, that is available and there's one called CCE that's available. The state has about a billion dollars related to behavioral health funding um, for those. So we have been applying. We've received partial funding to help support the crisis um, stabilization unit which we bought with Prop C money and the rehabilitation will be funded um, with um, CCE funding. Um, so we are trying to leverage both state and local money to um, afford our acquisitions. And in short, I would say we have lots of plans to buy the money to buy buildings. We have opened a lot of beds with our operating and I can refresh for you where we're at with our kind of 400 bed. Um, as you consider 
for next month, kind of yeah. the, the uh, committee spending priorities. Yeah, that's really helpful. And I've been following the dashboard. I guess I, 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 it seems like the acquisition dollars have been sitting there for quite a while. And um, I would love to see a plan for those. I feel like we could probably squeeze in a couple co-ops. Um, they're not that expensive. Um, if there's 129 million in acquisition and we have three million for two more co-ops, that would be, that would, seems doable to me at, at the very least, but I would love to see the investment plan. And, I mean, I would love to see the plan for the acquisitions. Um, I know um, the, be, the, the beds are also um, really important, all of, you know, and so maybe we can have a little bit of both. I think part of what, when I'm looking at the behavioral health plan that I'm looking at is a lot of front end kind of crisis care um, a lot of, there's quite a few beds which we need, we desperately need, I mean, this is amazing. We're opening new residential treatment beds for the first time in decades, like that's super amazing. No shade there at all. Um, looking for also a balance of having the ongoing care and the ongoing housing um, with those dollars as well. And it's kind of skewed more in the former direction. And so if we can get some stuff on the ongoing, that would be, that would be great as well. Um, so I, you know, I know it's kind of tricky because you guys are in the process of buying buildings and stuff like that. But if you have some rough estimates, like we think we're going to spend this much and this much and this much, and we may have some extra in the acquisitions, that would be fantastic. Yeah, we can do that for the April meeting, kind of okay. frame out a bit more of the estimated. We always try and strike the balance because we are negotiating in the private market for a yeah. building. So we don't want to show all of our cards um, when we're doing that. But I recognize um, for the committee kind of um, helping us approximate our, our use of the one-time money to meet, achieve those goals. So um, we can work with that. I had a slide in the um, meeting last, um, what month is it? In February. Um, and we can maybe frame out some estimates um, ar uh, around those high level kind of projects I did outline um, in that. Okay, great. Thank you. Thank you, Director Kirkpatrick. Is there any additional information from um, DPH? Okay, thank you so much. All right, and then uh, Secretary Hom will check public comment one more time. Members of the public who wish to write public comment in person, please come to the podium now. There are no in-person public comments. Members of the public who wish to buy public comment over the phone, please call 415-655-0001, access code 2495-548-4503. The password is 1234. If you haven't already done so, please dial star three to line up to speak. A system prompt will indicate you have raised your hand. Please wait until the system indicates you have been unmuted and you may begin your comments. Please note that you have two minutes. Moderator, do we have any public comments over the phone? There are no public comments. Thank you. Um, at this time, we're gonna go to item number five. I believe um, Director Najendra is, is Director Najendra able to join us? Or from, um, this is a presentation of the findings from the community engagement um, conducted for the strategic plan um, with uh, HSH, so. Wonderful, welcome. 
And if you could just introduce yourself, that'd be great. Oh, hey. <laughs> Good morning, everybody. I'm Stephanie Ashley with Talent Pool, um, joined by some of my awesome colleagues. Um, my colleague Earl is going to kick us off, but I think we had some slides we were hoping to share. <laughs> <laughs> we haven't been doing so great. There we go. Oh. Oh. Yay. Yay. Awesome. Uh, good morning. Um, Cooper Arona. I'm just with these guys. <laughs> Wonderful. <laughs> uh, good morning. My name is Earl Sims, and I am with uh, Talent Pool Consulting. Um, and today we want to present our findings. Sorry, I'm a little bit nervous. No worries. Uh, this feels like court. No, no joking. So I brought some cheat sheets. Um, so um, what we wanted to do was uh, uplift the community voice. And in order to uplift the community voice, I had the opportunity to be a part of a participatory action research um, effort with the district, the former district attorney. And um, this gave me an opportunity to realize uh, the importance of involving community voice and making decisions and empowering the community. So. Uh, we, we led with um, participatory action research, and our intention was to uplift uh, marginalized communities, black, trans, uh, non-gender conforming women, um, Tay, formerly incarcerated immigrants, um, and immigrants, sorry. And also, uh, some of the solutions were that we were going to onboard, which we did. We onboarded uh, four amazing community liaisons, one which is here. Um, as trusted advocates for the community to help design and, dis and deploy uh, the survey. So a little bit more about me. Um, so I served 22 years um, in uh, Department of Corrections. And my, my, our role is we wanted to develop a team that represented, it, represented all aspects of homelessness, the intersectionality between homelessness and incarceration, uh, to those that are, are currently are experiencing homelessness or have recently just overcome homelessness. Um, so I have to honor any public space that I'm in. I have to honor Alfonso, who was the victim of my crime. Uh, I took his life. And so any good that comes from this, uh, it's from our testimony. It's shared. Um, it's not of me. And so what we uh, utilized, um, um, next slide, <laughs> sorry. And so um, this, effort has, this effort began in August 2022, where we um, started out uh, planning and preparation and a lot of engagement with HSH itself. Uh, in September, we moved to recruiting the com community liaisons, which is Amina Elster, um, uh, Dana, Dana Martinis, Dana I mean, Dana Loveless and Zia Martinis and Cooper Arona. <laughs> so um, we were able to onboard our community liaisons, and then we started the design portion in October. Uh, in November, uh, we did some research planning. Survey design continued into November. And then gift cards had become a problem as far as securing gift cards. And thank goodness we, uh, we were able to, our team was able to leverage uh, relationships with Tipping Point in order to get a grant uh, for us to be able to uh, realize our efforts and 
compensate folks um, with lived experience who were involved either via uh, focus group and or survey. And December is when we hit the ground running and uh, we got the bulk of our work done. Uh, the original scope of work was 300 surveys and three focus groups and we were so happy that we had more opportunities to gauge, engage in more community engagement. Um, so that took us through uh, from December, we um, engaged in stakeholder uh, outreach as well. And then in January, we conducted surveys, ongoing stakeholder outreach, uh, focus groups and interviews. And then in February, ongoing stakeholders, uh, focus groups, and then the data analysis. So this is where we are now. Next slide, please. Um, well, I kind of went a little bit before myself, but here are our amazing liaisons um, who bring a wealth of experience and um, information and, and informed, our, um, informed our effort as a whole. So I definitely want to give props to our team. Um, they're amazing, and we wanted to authentically engage with the community, so I think we represented very well uh, the different demographics that are involved. Next slide, please. So <clears throat> um, we hired people with lived experience and we wanted to, we led, it was led by people with lived experience, designed and deployed uh, in the community uh, to involve the communi community so they could participate and offer their feedback and what they felt that would be the highest and the most important uh, things to identify and inform the design of the five-year strategic plan. So we were able to actually um, hold 319 surveys, um, which uh, the next slide will kind of go into where we were able to, oh, no, no, sorry. <laughs> Thanks. Um, we had sta uh, five stakeholder interviews, of course, six focus groups, and then we were involved as well as in um, SFAC meetings, town halls with HSH, as well as all, all staff meetings with HSH. And we also had uh, held some focus hours, I mean, some office hours so people could actually call us and uh, have conversations with us as well. Uh, next slide, thanks. And so the stakeholder, so stakeholder interviews normally are uh, individual where it's one-on-one, -on -one, but what we did was uh, because of the crunch tum uh, the, the timeline, um, we wanted to optimize optimize our opportunity. So when we got in contact with specific offices, you know there was multiple people in the interview itself, and I think it was very fruitful. Um, in total, I think we um, were able to engage a little, maybe 400 people total. So with adult probation, uh, there was three individuals on that call. Swords to Plowshare, we had three. Uh, DPH staff, we had two. Public Defender staff, we had two. And Young, Free Young Women's Freedom Center, we had one individual, which was a total of 11. Sorry, I had the closed caption. <laughs> so um, the focus groups uh, we held in a variety, we felt like um, just as our team was representing different um, uh, demographics in the community. We wanted our, our, our focus groups to do the same. Uh, and so we had seven members in the Fillmore community. 
um, all black adults uh, ages 18 to 14, and they all have experiences, experienced homelessness or currently are experiencing homelessness. Uh, so we uh, were able to meet with the community advisory board with the dish with dish which is a permanent supportive permanent supportive housing provider which there were eight participants and these are individuals who are actually in PSH uh, or permanent supportive housing um, we, we had the opportunity to talk to assertive case managers with SF pretrial uh, Nova um, in custody providers, which was nine, adult probation housing providers, which was eight. And then we also were blessed with an opportunity to go in, um, into, um, a, into the jail. Um, the, oh, my God. Behavioral health unit. Behavioral health unit, <laughs> um, uh, which we were able to interview or uh, help hold a focus group with 17 individuals, which was a total of 54. Um, so... Could you go to the next slide, please? So our survey consists of 31 questions. Um, the questions stem from demographics, um, age, uh, race, um, also personal experience with homelessness, um, ways to improve the system, and justice involvement, uh, because we wanted to honor the fact that there is uh, inconsistencies with um, how to provide uh, that intersectionality between uh, incarceration and homelessness. Next slide, please. <clears throat> so these are the areas that we were able to uh, disseminate um, our efforts, uh, our survey efforts uh, from October to January. Um, we were able to um, meet at the Navigation Center, uh, Ladies' Night, um, the Tenderloin Self-Help self Center, the Hospitality House, 6th Street, and which was amazing opportunity uh, to engage with folks who give you that real-time lens of what's happening and what it feels like to, uh, to navigate um, the system as it is. Uh, Lower Polk, Tay Navigation, so we had an opportunity to speak to youth. Um, I'm glad there is a focus on Tay. I feel like, you know, addressing the problem uh, upstream is, is very important. And, and they hold a lot of information. The Bayshore Navigation Center at Five Keys um, and Empowerment and Outreach. And then we were able to uh, go on the ground in um, Erie Alley, thanks to Cooper. <laughs> uh, Cooper helped arrange that. So um, could you go to the next slide, please? So uh, these are some very similar demographics that what we see, um, the people that we had a chance to talk to kind of represent those that are experiencing homelessness. Now, some of these graphs, individuals uh, or respondents had opportunity uh, to make more than one choice, so that affected the data a bit. But for the most part, um, uh, we see um, the high percentage of blacks and whites that are impacted um, and that we had the chance to talk to. Gender, it was 39% female, 46% uh, male. Uh, most people identified with having um, a disability, which uh, mental health and or physical. And um, the age, um, and then also um, those that have children, which was a unique opportunity. So um, I just, I'm gonna pass the mic to Stephanie and thank you for your patience. Thank you. Thanks, Earl. Um, we can go to the next slide, please. 
So just a little bit more about the experiences that we heard when we were out talking to folks. Um, we were really happy that we were, as Earl mentioned, with where we did the surveys, we were able to talk to a significant um, segment of people who are in shelters or navigation centers, as well as a significant portion of people who are living currently in permanent supportive housing, as well as people who are unsheltered. A um, little bit harder to reach people who are vehicularly housed or staying with friends and family, just kind of for obvious outreach reasons. Um, we, uh, yeah, about over 25% of the people we talked to were unsheltered. As Earl said, we did encampment outreach, just kind of, you know, on the ground in Erie Alley and also doing um, some outreach to encampments in the Bayview on Bayshore. Um, we, it's notable that almost 90% of the people that we talked to said if they were offered housing by the city today, they would accept it. And um, we'll get into it a little later. We did kind of drill down on that and said, you know, for the people who were hesitant, we said, would you accept it if any particular conditions? And it was really interesting to hear what people listed as those reasons. So that'll be in the strategic plan. Um, and then the green bubble that's covered up by the closed captioning says that a lot of people were homeless for more than a year. But um, actually, the overwhelming majority of people that we talked to um, had been homeless for upwards of 10 years. So we can go to the next slide. So, you know, we wanted to really focus on what people wanted to tell the city. Um, oftentimes when we do, or when, when research happens with people experiencing homelessness, it's asking them about their experience, which is important, but we also wanted people to have the chance to share their ideas to the city in the strategic plan. So um, there was a lot of feedback that um, the shelter and SRO programs needed to be overhauled in certain ways. Um, specifically, a lot of the feedback that we got about permanent supportive housing was that it was really important for people to have housing outside of the Tenderloin, housing where they could have their own bathroom, housing where they could cook their own meals, um, and housing where they could stay with their families. Um, that's not new. That's probably not surprising to any of you, but it was an overwhelming theme. Um, there was one of the things that was the most striking to me is just the lack of information that people had um, about how to access services. We did ask questions, where do you get your information about housing? Where do you get your information about shelter? Many people said, I don't get information about that. Um, followed by, I get it from word of mouth. Some people specifically said, I get it from Cooper. Mm -hmm. um, but, you know, and some people said, oh, well, sometimes I get it from the hot team. But it was very clear that um, there needs to be greater communication about how the services in the system work for folks. And that, to me, is like a very affordable, easy intervention, right? Just disseminating information better. Um, there was a lot of feedback that people wanted there to be more peer-based programming, especially when it came to outreach. A lot of people said, yeah, why can't they just have, you know, like this, have more of us going out and talking to each other. We could be sharing information, you know. So a real emphasis on um, having more people with lived experience, lived expertise, providing services, especially outreach. Um, and then a lot of people said that their um, permanent supportive housing was not working for them because of the rules and the regulations, that it felt um, just too difficult to adhere to, um, and that they wanted housing where there was um, just more freedom of movement, um, more ability to have guests, gatherings, family, um, and again, more opportunities for people to live um, with their loved ones, including their pets. 
Um, we've got a couple quotes here, you know, definitely there was a lot of feedback about the shelters that they wanted more sort of um, accountability around how the shelters were being run and also that there was a desire to have more diversity in case managers and kind of those intensive, more social worky um, services that those should be more reflective of the people that are being served as well. We can go to the next slide. So we gave, um, we, we gave a long list of potential priorities that we knew might be in the city's strategic plan and we asked people to rank their top five out of about a list of 20. And overwhelmingly, these were the top five. Um, I thought it was notable that better housing ranked significantly higher than more housing. Um, there was a really strong emphasis on improving the conditions of the permanent supportive housing that's available to people. Again, people want options outside of the tenderloin and people want options that several people said, we just want housing that like you would want to live in, you know? So the quality um, of permanent supportive housing was the number one greatest priority for folks that we talked to, followed by making it easier or faster to get housing. We heard from a number of unsheltered people who said, I actually got prioritized for housing, but then I don't know what happened. So a lot of people who are just um, not feeling like they're um, being supported and navigating their way to housing, even if they might be eligible for housing. Um, third was more housing, um, again, People really said more housing in different locations throughout the city. Um, fourth priority was improving and expanding case management and outreach. People generally had pretty good things to say about outreach when it was not tied to encampment resolutions, um, but just outreach on its own was something that people felt positively about, and a lot of people reflected that used to happen, we don't really see it as much anymore. We don't know where the outreach workers went and I think that's reflective of some of what happened during the pandemic, but that was a priority. Um, and then lastly, um, just you know, more shelter and easier to access shelter. Um, next slide, please. So you know, when we said what should the city's goal be when it comes to homelessness, um, pretty much everyone said, get people housed. And when we said who, they said everybody, right? So um, get people housing, um, creating, again, um, safer, more accessible, more flexible, more sort of person-centered housing opportunities. There was a lot of feedback that the like one-size-fits-all model doesn't work for everybody. Um, increasing transparency, communication, and coordination. So again, people both said, like, I don't have any information. I don't know where to get information. I only hear it from my friends when I hear anything. And then people also said, um, you know, I just wish people would be honest with me, even if that means, hey, you're not going to be able to access this or it's going to be this long. People felt like they were kind of being given misinformation and there was a desire for more... Um, just reliable information. Next slide. Um, again, you, I talked through some of this already, but I'll just highlight. Um, we asked people for, for feedback on specific sort of departments or segments of, of the city that, uh, that interfaces with people experiencing homelessness. When it came to law enforcement and DPW, kind of unanimously, everyone said there needs to be more training. Um, 
might not surprise you, we heard a lot of reports of abuses, um, you know, human rights violations. Um, people had a lot of very traumatic experiences, especially when it came to sweeps. And there was um, a real kind of unified voice around there needs to be better training. Um, so um, there was, we were surprised at how much hunger and food scarcity was reported. Um, also a desire for more treatment options for people dealing with um, substance use disorders. And several people commented on the closing of the linkage center, that the linkage center was somewhere where they actually were getting information and that the closure of the linkage center created a kind of a void that hasn't been filled yet. Next slide, please. Um, like Earl said, we really tried to focus, like really double down on communities that we knew were being sort of under, um, or were underutilizing or being underserved by the homelessness response system. So um, it, I'm not sure how clearly it came through in our demographic slide, but close to 20% of the people that we talked to were trans, two-spirit, gender non-conforming, um, intersex, or identified in another way outside of the gender binary. And there was a real desire for safe programs for TGNC communities, especially in light of what's happening nationally, the amount of trans people that are gonna be seeking refuge in San Francisco, desire for more programs, safer programs. Um, formerly incarcerated people generally reported being discharged from jails, prisons, detention centers with no connection to housing. It was very rare that anyone reported that they received housing supports upon release. So that's a major gap. Um, and then uh, greater language access. And I think that was something that if we had the ability to expand or continue our program, we would have had greater language access in our team as well. Um, we can go to the next slide. So now I wanna pass it over to Cooper and see if Cooper wants to add any reflections. No pressure. But if you wanna reflect on anything, um, what was surprising to you? Um, what would you be excited to see more of with this project? And then we can also open it up to questions from the commission. Hello. Um, one of the things that, I guess, surprised me that um, a lot of folks um, that I thought, uh, that, that we spoke to, that, that I knew, um, wanted housing. You hear within the city, you know, folks that, you know, workers and or case managers, that people don't want to get off the street. They don't, they want to, you know, they choose to be um, unhoused, but that's definitely not true. So and I was actually lightweight surprised that, that folks, they, they want to get off the street. They want, they want something real to grab onto. And um, there's a lot of people are sick of being on the street, but they're also, the, the, to navigate through the system of our housing is really, um, it's very hard for folks. And they don't have phones. They don't, can't charge their phones. There's no place for them to actually get in contact with the case manager, caseworker, or even someone in, you know, housing or whatever. So um, um, the people want it. They want to be off the street. There just to be, needs to be a way to, for them to grab it. Um, um, and I think that um, this, this whole thing that, we're, that, we, that they put together is amazing. Like, there are things that I learned along, along the way. It's just um, hearing people from... You know, like I always say, the beat of the street, you got to touch it, taste it, to feel it, you know, to do about it. Um, that folks really want to be heard and they're not being heard. And um, that's the most important thing is like instead of just saying what we think 
people need, go out and ask them what they need, ask what they want, because I think that will help, um, you know, bridge that gap that we have with uh, being unhoused in San Francisco. Um, but this is a really, people were so excited that, that their voice was being heard, that they're like, you're really writing this down, you're really saying, yeah, this, you matter, and they're like, yeah, right. You know, and I even had a few folks, um, more than that, I think it was like 11 people just since then, come up to you and ask me about, about what happened with the survey. I'm like, no, I, we jotted all that stuff down. It's in the data. I said, I'm saying that nicely, but in my own words, I let them know what's up. Um, but basically, like, they were like, that, so that really happened. The, my, what my words mattered. Yeah, it, it's, and they're actually going to listen to me. Yeah, that's what, that's what the whole point of that was. And so it was just really cool to see, the, like, eyes sparkle, you know, and the smile and people's, you know, that they, like, they're actually being heard, and that mattered. You know, that made me feel, like, amazing that, 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 that they felt like, hey, there is a little bit of hope, you know what I mean, that, and, that, and that, that, that they mattered finally. You know, and so that's what we need to not forget is it asking people and having a conversation with people and just uh, making them feel like they are wanted, heard, and just that that they're not just nobody out on the street, that they do matter, because we're all San Francisco residents. We're just the unhoused San Francisco residents. And that's it. You know, there's, there was one uh, one thing that in the data that came out. Uh, we we talked to 17 individuals that were in um, in this in this behavioral health unit, and out of the 17 individuals, four were native uh, to San Francisco. So I think you know that's something that I think should be explored as well. And um, you know, they also their feedback was they felt valued uh, that we were giving them an opportunity to listen to them and understand, you know, what do they need? What do you need? So like having that almost um, uh, uh, that trauma-informed where information is being passed back and forth freely and authentically, I think that's how we can get to the solution to any problem that we're facing in this city. Um, and with that, I just wanted to add that. So any questions? Yes, thank you so much. But I want to just give you a, a, a huge round of applause. an amazing effort and um, yes I also see that uh, director Najendra has joined us I want to welcome you and if you have any additional comments you're welcome to join uh, your colleagues at the podium if you want to just mention a little bit about the process or anything yes good morning my name is Cynthia Najendra I am a deputy director at HSH um, and I just wanted to one just reiterate the gratitude that we have for uh, the community liaisons, we have not, we would not be able to get the sort of input um, that they were able to get. I mean, they were out over the holidays in the rain talking to people at all hours of the evening and day. And we just, um, and the trust that they have with people was just, uh, able, so they were able to facilitate just very honest conversations that really brought us extremely meaningful input. I wanted to just say the process really has been um, sort of iterative, so we have been working with, we were lucky to, to have talent pool come on as a contractor and really kind of guide us in best practices and how we should be engaging um, people who have lived experience in both as, as community liaisons, um, as, you know, as people who are providing input, as Earl was saying, you know, in a, to do it in a trauma-informed way, to resource people and support people to be giving us this input, both at the stages of planning, designing things, you know, evaluating, and the sort of uh, the clear vision um, that was kind of provided to us on many different things really helped shape a lot of what's going to be in the strategic plan. We really, 
you know, we don't really have a lot of ability at the moment in terms of capacity to, to engage people um, who are living outside in a, in a broad way. And so getting that input and really kind of highlighting, it's, it, you know, we understand that we are not reaching everyone, but illuminating how much people need everything that you heard today um, really just sort of made things very crystal clear about what, how we should prioritize people who are living outside and, and the kinds of things that people need in housing. So it really has shaped the way we're thinking about, um, you know, kind of there's a lot of things that are needed across our system and need to be funded, but it helps kind of crystallize where we should prioritize our work and also how important it is to resource this work on a regular, ongoing way. I mean, there is no way to get this kind of input and this kind of guidance from people um, without first really supporting them to be able to do that. And I, again, really um, echo the sort of the model talent pool has about staffing and coaching and supporting. And, and then the actual community liaisons are the ones who are engendering the conversations. And they went to places you know, that folks you know, who are only very trusted can go. So I think that that is a singular, a singular duty that only like very few people can do. And I just, again, we're deeply grateful. The information is incredibly um, <clears throat> influential. And the ongoing nature of the input is really important. So we want to sort of keep that um, to, to keep people resourced to do this work so that we can continuously improve, continuously like sort of have our feet on the ground um, in ways that we, we might not always be able to do without this kind of, uh, this kind of input and guidance from, from the lived experts. So thank you. And I'm so sorry, I just want to add one more thing. So yeah, we did regularly hear from people like, there's a great desire for us to come back and share out the strategic plan. Like there was a real... Um, including, like Earl said, with the 17 young people that we talked to in um, the Behavioral Health Unit at CJ4, we're like, we want to see the report. We want to see our feedback in the report. We want to know what the plan is. And so I would definitely recommend that there be another um, you know, chapter to this work where we get to do that share out of the plan. People experiencing homelessness should know what the city's five-year strategic plan on homelessness is, and, and we need to make a plan to do that. And then the other piece that Cynthia mentioned about resources, you know, we were able to, I think, meaningfully compensate people for their time and their input, and that was really significant, you know, being able to put $100 on people's books when they're in custody, like that, that's a significant, um, really important part of this work too. So I just want to thank the city and our, um, you know, private partners for resourcing it as it needed to be. Thank you so much. We're going to open it up to the committee. Is there any comments from the committee? We can just go down the line, starting yeah, with we'll member. We'll just go down the line, starting <laughs> with member Catalano. I think we all want to just uh, okay. make comments. Or okay, actually, great. Vice Chair, do you I can else? jump in first. Well, go thank you. It. That was a great presentation. Um, it's just really great and refreshing to see um, the city and us working with a consulting firm that is actually representative of our city and the folks that we're serving. So, just like thank you for that. I think, um, yeah, uh, really great data. Um, I think one thing I would like to see in the future is it pulled out by family, youth, and adult, just because it sounded, at least for me, very focused on the adult side, like a lot of um, stuff that I was hearing. I don't know. Um, and like one thing, for example, is in the section about um, like uh, children, like if people have children, it's unclear to me if, for example, someone has a 30-year-old child, would they say, yeah, like are they going through the family system or not? Like just little things like that in the data. Yeah, sorry, go ahead. Go ahead. 
We did um, ask a whole section on children and families that, that will be pulled out in the survey. We just didn't highlight it on okay. here. So we did ask if people had children under 18, if they had children that lived with them, and if they were separated from their children, if getting housing would allow okay. them to regain custody. Great. So we did parse that out. And I think I think maybe about close, maybe 18 or 20% of our surveys were with Tay as well. With Tay. Okay, great. Yeah. I mean, those were really my only comments just because I'm a data person. So it's just like constantly on my mind, like which system would this person be going through? And I, yeah. Anyways, great job. Really great work. That was a summary of the, of the surveys, but we have the raw data and we can sort of uh, sort it in different ways. So there is a number of demographic questions that helps us do that, but there, and then there's a lot of, uh, there was a lot of room for narrative answers, but we can sort the, the data and share it that way too. Definitely, yeah, if there's a way to disseminate it, like by system, basically that someone would be going through, like I think that would be helpful for us. Yeah. Um, thank you so much. I'm a huge participatory research fan and, um, and uh, it's really great. And um, I wanted to just ask on the, the improvement to the housing, if, um, if it was still a majority once you pulled out the folks that you interviewed who were already in housing, you know what I mean? Because it kind of, is it kind of like, did we get like large portions of people who were homeless that were like, I want to go into housing, but I want to, my first priority is that the housing gets improved. Uh, and so you guys got that too, because I just think it's so telling in terms of, um, with the number of people, the, the kind of the churn and people who were in housing and then fell out of housing and they're homeless again. And then what that means is they're um, facing really severe hardships on the street and, um, and seeing like that weighing so heavy, right? So, Wait, yeah. Is your question, if someone left, perm or if, like, left so permanent supportive you, housing and said, I'm not gonna go back unless these improvements are made, Kind of, yeah, like 20% of the people they surveyed were in housing. So if they pulled that 20% out. Oh. Um, would that like still that be top priority? Important. Yeah. Is the improvement of Got housing it. still a top priority? Yeah. I don't know, but we could try, we could play around with the numbers okay. and see if it would change, if the priorities would change if we took out the responses of people who are housed. We could do that and, and circle back. Yeah, I mean, if it's a high proportion of people on the streets, even if it's not a majority, I think it's still really, tells us something it's not necessarily for this committee to address um, but it is something for the department to to you know take seriously yeah there's um, you know we're doing some work with our um, supportive housing around assessing what's what services are available and and one of the things that we have been talking about is whether we can because of their uh, input from folks who are already housed or have come out of housing asking what would have helped keep you in housing or you know kind of what you're getting at and I think there's more opportunity to do that to follow up with folks or you know talk to folks who we haven't spoken to before but to sort of really say what would have helped um, or why you know why didn't this work or how can we have um, you know done better so I think that that opportunity is is still there yeah um, the the same the same organization that um, that we held the, the focus group with that were the cab members that were in permanent supportive housing want us to come back and do and explore that those topics um, and help support them in creating a better uh, environment for folks that are in their housing. Um, okay. So I thank you for bringing that up. That's definitely a data point that we can 
go back and look at um, the survey tool that we use to, to um, synthesize that data, and we can, I'm, I'm sure we can extrapolate that, that data as well. Thank you so much for all of the work um, and for coming to present to us. Um, I hope there, in addition to a next phase of work that is reporting back to communities and folks that you spoke with, there's additional phases of work that are allowing more feedback um, regarding the implementation of the strategic plan once that rolls out. I think that feels really um, necessary and supportive to our work as well. Um, and I'm wondering, I know this wasn't necessarily the core thrust of um, the survey, but to what extent information came out about um, what would have prevented folks' homelessness, um, what could have helped keep them stably housed, not necessarily just folks that were living in permanent supportive housing, but if there were any sort of findings or surprising things that you learned about um, how we could think as a system about homelessness prevention. Just, uh, I don't know if exactly if we had any specific data on that stuff. Uh, maybe we have to double check on that. But one of the things for myself that um, I've constantly, constantly heard just why people are back on the street is because, you know, they were in, they finally got into housing and everything, but there was issues with staff. Um, about at least 17 people in just this one little group that we did out on, uh, um, from the ladies' night to uh, Iriali was, um, the they were out there in tents now was because the staff was stealing from them, broke in the rooms, they could, things like that. So that's why they, they chose to, or aggressive uh, staff members, uh, so they chose to, to leave their housing to go back. It, it, was, it was better to be on, on in a tent than be uh, in where they felt unsafe. So that was one of the things that people were threatened. That, that was something that was, uh, you know, in, in my own little data, that was about 17, I, just, I mean, out of all the people, there was other things that led them to going back on the street, but um, most of them said that they, those, those out of the 20 said they wouldn't go back into housing because they're too scared. So that was just a little, little bit of my, from, from my own uh, experience. Uh, as I recall, when we were doing um, some of the surveys, so we tried to utilize as much as possible. The timeline was really ambitious, but we were trying to use um, motivational interviewing um, to, because, you know, even one of the questions was to ask the, the individual, where do you see yourself in five years? Instead of just being extractive, you know, where do you see yourself and how, how can the city help you get there? And so some of the things that came up were that um, after COVID and folks were being released out of SIP hotels, they were prioritized still and they were going in permanent supportive housing and they weren't necessarily ready um, for permanent supportive housing and they disrupt the culture. Um, drugs and, and alcohol and sometimes um, hoarding and not being able to live inside of a dwelling in a safe way. And it creates uh, kind of like a hostile environment for those that have been there and that have been there longer than 15 years. They've also said that, um, you know, the, the positioning and the placing of where those housings are, the housing is situated is triggering if you're battling with, if you're battling addiction. Also, it can exacerbate mental health conditions. Um, so these are things that we continuously hear. Uh, I know there's a lot of movement and effort towards abstinent-based programs and, and which, you know, we firmly believe and what we've seen in the data is that there's a need for a net that is 
designed to catch everyone. And I think, you know, if you just have one singular approach and you design that net that way, there's going to be gaps and it's not going to fully catch individuals that where they need to be. So if we can figure out a way, you know, with, with community help and assistance um, to understand what that net looks like, you know, is it smaller? Is it, you know, so, um, yeah, you know, uh, there was something else that definitely training. So when we were pushing for, you know, this is something that I had to overcome as someone with lived experience who experienced two decades incarcerated coming out and being able to have exposure to training, you know, the opportunity with the fellowship, which exposed me uh, to learning about PAR, about participatory action research, um, and to how to show up in a professional way, as well as uh, the cultural competence, the competency that's necessary. So you have a lot of peers, and we're pushing for peer-based uh, work, a workforce, but also uh, training, the training that's required to deal with the vicarious trauma of, you know, uh, maybe monitoring or being out in the street under, you know, some agencies that that's the service that they provide. So the training is essential. And, and I was starting to give my own opinions, but <laughs> I'll stick to the data, sorry. Thank you. I don't know if there's any comments. I want to just add to my comments and just gratitude for all the work um, that you guys have done. Um, I also do community engagement, community outreach. This is my background, and I just feel like participatory action research is just so important um, as part of the conversation. And um, I'm just thinking about the balance between our existing portfolio of PSH and, and those um, offerings and how do we create, help those to be safer and more welcoming for folks with the need to get folks off the street and sort of balancing those um, those needs. And I'm just really concerned about the safety issues and I've heard that anecdotally from folks um, that I know who are struggling, um, just not wanting to go back because of those safety conditions, particularly um, you know from a gender specific issue. So women identified folks and trans folks. And um, so just really trying to think through like what can we, um, do as we're sort of moving towards um, improving our sites and then also sort of balancing getting folks off the streets. Um, what are some things that you heard that would make um, it more attractive to be in these these housing opportunities? Um, I know you mentioned issues with staff, um, you know, some of these other safety issues. I mean, is there something that we can collaborate with HSH on um, really thinking through some of these safety concerns? Because it sounds like that's a, a big um, a big focus, can be a big focus for us. Um, one of the things that um, I think that is uh, gigantic in, 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 in this is, is, well, like I said before, the listening and, and, and asking the folks, um, but when it comes to um, like places where women need to feel safe, like the drop-in, the, the, I know the 24-hour drop-in just open back up again, um, but there are folks there that aren't, um, I think there need to be more female staff there when, especially in a female, uh, you know, environment like that, when you have all men staff in there and women, they can't feel like, because I used to volunteer there for three years. And so like the, the male staff that's there, not that they're not good, whatever, but like a lot of times the women won't, you know, uh, go in there and or they feel uncomfortable just because they've had trauma or there's things that they make, made them feel uncomfortable. Um, when, uh, and there's, there's no... Um, 
a lot of the staff doesn't have like um, like I say verbal judo skills. They don't have uh, de-escalation skills. There's not um, th th that training aspect is really important um, uh, because when someone has a, a mental breakdown, and I saw it time and time again when I when I volunteered there, that um, they would just get DOSed out of uh, you know if they were off their meds or whatever, the, the staff didn't know how to handle the situation, and so um, it got aggressive or whatever it may be, and they didn't know how to handle it. So t training. Uh, is important, but also maybe getting our pool of, of employees and or people that work there from different places other than uh, maybe like the counseling programs, the, the college, you know, some where, where folks are learning how to be, uh, you know, that have those skills, that are learning those skills that could be, that could help people, because a lot of folks will not go back to, um, to like to a place where they should be feeling safe. Um, because of they got DOS or you know just whatever it may be, there should be if they are having a mental breakdown or something's happened, there should be a way for them to get the help that they need, and that's that's lacking in our in in our system. People just get DOS and and, and forgot about, and um and then they're just back on the street feeling alone and scared and not any other place to go. So um, that's just my my synopsis. So. Thank you. Thank you. And I just want to add, you know, even though like feedback about the the supportive housing stock was like the the loudest thing we heard, or the most frequently stated thing we heard, 88% of people still said if they were offered housing by the city today, they would take it, right? So I think like figuring out what's the gap between like, what's what's the communication gap between people who are housing priority, who are not getting into housing, who could be, is like one thing. And then also, you know, going back to the not one size fits all thing, like if there are folks who have specific housing needs based on their history of trauma, finding a housing solution that's going to work for them. And specifically when um, Cooper and I were doing encampment outreach on Bayshore, a lot of the folks we talked to were just like, I, I want to be housed. I'm ready to be housed. I just can't go be in the tenderloin. I can't. I need to, need to not go be housed in the tenderloin. And so it's like, um, I think it's both and people want to be housed. People are ready to accept housing. So, you know, connecting those dots and then also not trying to just plug everyone into the same... Um, you know, the same housing offering? Yeah, that, that's a great question. And, um, well, I, what I brought, you know, I have to write things down because I'll forget. <laughs> you know? Me too. But that was one of the things, oh, sorry. That was one of the things that was um, uh, specific design, the design of the house you know, you, you, you want to target a population or you want to figure out a population. I don't like using the word target. And um, when you are able to have a conversation and get that feedback loop of the needs of the individuals for those specific populations that are having these barriers, it's important for them to be involved in the solution, right? So it goes back to PAR, it goes back to the community loop, the loop of feedback and that trauma-informed approach. I don't want to just use that as a tag word, but I truly believe in, um, you know, like almost a horizontal, a, a space for like a horizontal leadership where folks can take agency that don't necessarily always have that agency. Um, and so hearing from them is what we need more of. What are the barriers? What would make you feel safer? You know, those, those exploratory questions uh, that are also empowering because you're asking for someone's opinion, they're asking for someone's voice to feel empowered in their own and take agency in their own life. So um, definitely that one size fits all, it, it doesn't work well because um, 
populations as a whole have individual needs. And I think when we listen to those populations, then we can design programs that will be more successful. And uh, a lot of some of the things that I've heard as well in this process was the fact that the, the environment itself wasn't healing, it was triggering. So if you have an environment, meaning the, um, the space and how it's kept or um, how it's, how, you know, I mean, you have individuals that do have episodes that cause destruction and things of that nature, but it also, it, you know, how does that feel? Your, how does your environment feel as far as tapping into that safety? And if you don't feel safe, then you're not gonna be, you can't be authentic. You can't engage in that change. That's my opinion, of course, but um, yeah. Thank you for that question. Thank you. Thank you so much. And I know we'll continue to work in partnership with HSA and I just wanna commend uh, Director Simmons and Director Najendra for this effort. I know that we talk a lot at this committee about the importance of community engagement and just really excited to see this effort and I'm just really thankful for the partnership and wanna continue that strong partnership. So um, with that, is there any additional uh, comments or questions from the committee? Okay, we're gonna go to public. Oh, members of <laughs> Thank you again. We're gonna to go to public comment again, Secretary Hom. Members of the public who wish to provide public comment in person, please step up to the podium now. There are no public comments in person. Members of the public who wish to provide public comment over the phone, please call 415-655-0001, access code 2495-548-4530. The meeting password is 123. If you haven't already done so, please dial star three to line up to speak. A system prompt will indicate you have raised your hand. Please wait until the system indicates you have been unmuted and you may begin your comments. Please note that you have two minutes. Moderator, do we have any public comments on the phone? There are no public comments. Okay, thank you, Secretary Hom. At this time, we are gonna move um, to our liaison uh, priorities. I know we have, um, our shelter liaison, shelter hygiene uh, liaison here, and our prevention liaison. So whoever wants to go first, you're more than welcome to jump in. Or is there, I think I'm supposed to tee this up a little bit more. <laughs> but my internet is, just went down. Um, I've got a copy of the slides I can. Okay, can you send those over? Actually. This one's hard? Is it printed? Yeah. Uh, One moment. This one. Let me get internet back. Okay. Thank you. Okay. So I am gonna tee this up a little bit. Um, so, um, so for this uh, this item, the liaisons are gonna present their initial thinking on the budget priorities and recommendations. Um, so just a little bit on what's happened so far. Um, we had a first look at the OCO, OCO uh, fund revenue at the November retreat and the mayor's budget instructions gave an expectation of revenue shortfalls. Um, we know there's an expectation of vol volatility and the impact has been the committee has the opportunity to advise the mayor and board on high priority programming to protect during the rebalancing process. Um, so in terms of what we've uh, told the liaisons to answer or to keep in mind as we think about this revenue picture is what challenges and opportunities do you see? What investments should be protected? What kinds of investments should be expanded, continued, or added? And what questions would you like to answer through community engagement? 
Um, in terms of the budget recommendations, um, we also have these overarching priorities and objectives. Um, definitely number one is to center racial equity, um, to prioritize, thank you, um, to prioritize a wider array of programs to meet diverse needs, to prioritize permanent housing solutions to generate system flow, um, to increase investment, leverage funding, and coordinate effort to bring resources to scale. Uh, these four objectives synthesize findings from the committee's needs assessment, which you can find online, and the two-year investment plan, which you can also find online. Um, so far, the liaisons and their teams, they've met with departments twice to talk about program implementation and budget priorities. Um, and the liaisons have reviewed the strategies the committee outlined for each fund area in the first two-year investment plan. Um, and liaisons have reviewed the two-year budget approved last year, and the committee received the mid-year budget versus actuals and implementation reporting at the February meeting. Um, and I'll also say um, the, the liaisons have met with the departments twice, and they, those conversations were focused on program implementation and budget priorities. So at this time, after <laughs> teeing that up, I'm going to turn it uh, to our, let's, we got shelter and hygiene up okay, first. Great. So Member Friedenbach. Thanks, Chair Williams. So, um, so last year's budget, so the shelter category, um, uh, we have hotel vouchers for domestic violence survivors and families, pregnant people and youth. Um, there's a family shelter um, that has been kind of rocky, but it's look like looks like it's going to continue there at the Oasis. Um, and uh, um, so it's been opening and closing, but there's ongoing operating costs for that. Um, the vehicle triage um, center, safe parking, which is in the Bayview, which is a place where people in RVs can park. Um, there's two safe sleep sites, um, one in the Mission and one in the Bayview. Um, those are uh, are going are are ramping down. That doesn't make sense. Those are phasing out as of July 1st of um, uh, this year. It's proposed. Um, there's an RV uh, trailer sh um, site that um, the governor donated trailers and it's out at the pier and the hope is that to be ongoing although that lease is up at the end of the calendar year. Um, the um, navigation centers, um, the fund is paying for operating costs at several navigation centers including the uh, Bayview Nav, um, extra beds at um, Division Circle. Um, and um, there's a navigation center for justice involved. Um, and then there's some HSH allocated costs in there. Next slide, please. Um, so uh, our objectives, and these were things that we that were pulled together when we were working with the consultants, I guess a year and a half ago. Um, and this is, you know, along the top are the four basic kind of overall objectives that uh, Chair Williams already covered. Um, the first is racial equity, um, really trying to make shelter accessible and inviting to underserved populations. Um, there's a suggested addition to that. We would have to bring it back for a vote formally because all of this was voted in. Provide shelter in impacted communities to enable people to remain in connected, connected to communities um, as another piece of racial equity for shelter and hygiene. Um, having a wide array of programs to respond to diverse needs. I feel like sh the shelter investments have really done that. Um, we've had non-congregate shelters um, and um, for example, the family shelter went from a congregate shelter to a private room shelter. Um, we added the safe parking. We added like there's um, the tiny homes. The There's been like a number of different um, 
new, the safe sleep sites with the tents, um, new um, uh, interventions there. Um, we want to continue using hotel vouchers as shelter. This is a pretty quick way to kind of increase our shelter capacity um, and kind of ramp it up and down as needed um, and more capacity and geographic options for youth. Um, permanent housing and system flow, of course, this is a key part of shelter. You want to make sure that people aren't in shelter <coughs> for the rest of their lives, um, that they're moving out of shelter so that that could be more efficiently, it's a more efficient investment in shelter if there's turnover in those beds. Um, shelter is very expensive. Um, and then bringing resources to scale, um, expanding services and facilities to meet people's needs. Um, next slide, please. So the challenges and opportunities. Um, so, you know, we could be more deliberate <coughs> about equity and more intentional towards um, trying to reach underserved communities. Um, we had a huge bump on the Latino population. We considered it continue to have African-Americans way overrepresented and um, members of the LGBTQ and transgender um, ex communities experiencing homelessness at very high rates. Um, uh, shelter and hygiene is, um, uh, you know, looking at, you know, um, uh, this is, you know, this is a category that's a little tighter. If the city could <coughs> contribute more general <coughs> funds and increase um, and increase our shelter capacity, certainly. Um, we were really slow on launching the hotel rooms. And, um, uh, you know, I've had mentioned the issues with the leases already. Um, so that's, um, there's some uncertainty there. Um, we want to really um, uh, protect the hotel voucher funding. Um, um, I mentioned already the the positives there, and also we can really target communities with those. Um, we want to try to keep that trailer program in the Bayview going. Um, and we had in our um, focus groups that we did at the different sites really probably the highest rate of satisfaction um, out of <coughs> modalities were the folks that were out at the trailers. And so, um, you know, for the price, it's a much higher quality experience for the people who are there. Um, so we've got to try to get the Pier 94 lease uh, renewed is basically the, the thing. The other challenge, though, is it's going to cost a million dollars in leasing that we didn't have to pay during COVID that now we have to pay. And I think, um, next slide. Um, so um, we want to really make sure we keep the family shelter program budget there and um, that we're meeting, that we're, that we're having low barrier access to emergency shelter for families with, with children um, and, you know, trying to save the OASIS and making sure a large portion of those beds have that. Um, uh, we were hoping we'd see some savings there because there are donors that are buying it, but it doesn't look like that's going to be the case. Um, and then the safe sleeps are a lower budget priority, um, basically because of the high costs that we're paying for them versus the low quality experience. And I'm, I'm not saying that as a diss to the providers, but just the very, uh, you know, the winds are blowing and you're in a tent. Like it's just a very uncomfortable situation. It's raining, it's cold, it's, you know, and basically for the same price we're getting, and even lower prices, we're getting a higher quality kind of, you know, conditions for folks. So um, next slide. That might be all my shelter slides, right? Yeah. And we're going to our next uh, section. Down to prevention. 
Great, thank you. So I can speak to the homelessness prevention um, category, and thanks to Member Friedenbach for joining in, in some of these discussions we've had with the departments. Um, included in last year's budget, just as a reminder, is clinical behavioral health services for tenants in PSH and some of those legacy buildings. You saw in the presentation from DPH uh, declining um, declining uh, funds uh, that are going towards that from this bucket over the coming years. Also in this bucket in the last year's budget was shallow subsidies for PSH tenants, and that includes, um, uh, I believe, two different sets of subsidies, some for SRO families, um, based on some of the conversations and the community input that we received last year. There's also eviction prevention and housing stabilization, and that's actually, I want to remind everyone, includes quite a lot of different programs, um, including um, uh, the tenant right to counsel, mediation, um, some of these uh, shallow subsidies as well. I'm sorry, the shallow subsidies for PSH tenants should speak to that 30%, I believe, um, maintaining 30% uh, cap on income. And there are additional shallow subsidies in the eviction prevention and housing stabilization bucket, which includes SRO families um, and others. Also wanted to, sorry, back up for one second, just to the clinical behavioral health services for legacy PSH tenants. Um, this is the the Permanent Housing Advanced Clinical Services Team, which is an interdisciplinary medical and behavioral health team um, with different clinical staff. It's, my understanding is they're still hiring up for what will be a full team there, um, but really providing some services that will help with some of the concerns um, that tenants face, not related to the physical conditions of PSH buildings, but to some of the um, unaddressed and unmet need related to um, various physical and mental health conditions. Moving on to just targeted homelessness prevention, that's moving into what is the steady state program, which will um, kind of finish the end of the federal funding, COVID relief funding that we had, and now we'll rely very heavily on Prop C funding for both MoCD and HSH to provide that emergency targeted um, financial assistance to households. They are prioritizing households um, in an uh, even more prioritizing households that have a prior experience of homelessness. I believe that's going to be an automatic um, trigger basically for receiving um, support under the new program, presuming available funding. Problem solving and diversion um, is, was no funding, uh, was, was appropriated for FY2023, FY24, but there's those carryover costs, which we heard in the presentation are one-time only costs. So in um, a short period of time, there will be no funding uh, that will be available for problem solving. And as you likely recall that those programs take have taken a little while to ramp up, but now there are um, access points specific to veterans run by Swords to Plowshares, as well as for justice-involved folks run by pretrial diversion. Um, and so there, the intention to have those resources, those problem-solving resources, be more available in the shelters um, to folks who uh, are in different communities is, is being realized as those contracts are, are finally getting out the door. Next slide, please. Um, Member Friedenbach already described these top-level goals, but what's new here, I think, um, for prevention under racial equity and bring resources to scale are two um, goals that I, I wanted to just highlight, and, and we can have a further discussion and, and hopefully a vote about at some point. But under racial equity, really prioritizing communities at risk of homelessness for financial and other housing stabilization resources. Obviously, particularly important given the 55% jump in Latinx homelessness um, that Member Friedenbach mentioned just in the last three years. And also that um, I know from HSH's data on 
those households newly identified as homeless, um, not necessarily newly becoming homeless, but newly identified as homeless, they account for 40% um, of black and African Americans. So that is um, unacceptable, and our homelessness prevention system should prioritize resources to those communities. Um, and then under Bring Resources to Scale, you'll also see just a reflection of the work that HSH and MoCD have been doing in partnership to really bring this cohesive um, prevention system to scale, everything from tenant right to council, working with folks that are um, in subsidized housing, permanent supportive housing, private rental market, um, all the way through uh, diversion and trying to get people rapidly um, uh, stably housed or, or rehoused. Next slide, please. Um, top line here is the same as unfortunately the other buckets, which is we're seeing decreasing revenue and, and uh, even more so revenue uncertainty. Um, I believe the numbers provided by uh, Director Simmons said that in the prevention category, there'll be $9.8 million in shortfall by 24-25, so that's significant. Um, the second two bullets here refer to community engagement. Um, we've seen through the work of Vice Chair D'Antonio and Data Officer Ledbetter, Member Friedenbach, um, that OCO has played a really significant role in, in making sure there's community engagement in some of the budgeting conversations. That has been less true for the prevention category, obviously harder to reach these folks, but as that program continues to serve people, I think there's opportunities to make sure that we're engaging with them to understand where there's um, pivots that might need to be made or program improvements. And then, as mentioned, the problem-solving activities are not going to be um, funded. There's no ongoing source of funding for those. And so if those are proving to be fruitful and really serving to divert people from um, emergency shelter and other parts of the homelessness response system, there will need to be additional funds identified for that. My recommendation um, in conversation uh, with other members and with the departments are to protect and increase funding for targeted homelessness prevention. Um, I will share that I there was some learning that I was able to do thanks to Member Friedenbach and members of the departments about the cohesive system um, that really is being built out here and does function. Um, so really trying to make sure we maintain the investments that have been um, that have been established so far and that have been put into place, including from eviction. To, uh, prevention and, and housing stabilization all the way through the targeted homelessness prevention and the role that each plays in ensuring that um, folks stay stably housed. Next, please. We also discussed um, the potential um, benefits and importance of shallow subsidies, both with regard to prevention and with regard to permanent housing. With prevention, we're really thinking about what is the referral pathway um, for folks that are accessing emergency rental assistance or otherwise um, in need of uh, kind of emergency homelessness prevention support. But then there's this ongoing issue that is um, economically driven that where they are not able to afford rent. Um, and, and what is the role for shallow subsidies in making sure that those households are really truly stabilized and prevented long-term from becoming homeless? Next slide. Thank you. Sure. Um, you want to do? Cover these if I'm on. Okay. All right. So right now our permanent housing liaison is vacant. Um, I should say that uh, Ken Reggio has stepped down from the committee, and we appreciate everything Ken has done for us on the committee as, in his role as permanent housing liaison. Um, so what's in last year's bu budget? Uh, we know we had the flex pool for adults um, for the Bayview 
district for seniors, for women, for EHV, for youth, and for families. We have PSH operations, the medium-term subsidies, and rapid rehousing. We had housing acquisition, housing development for families, um, the PSH equity services, the SRO and doubled up families, the family housing ladder, the Tay Bridge housing, and the HSH allocated costs. Next slide. So again, um, we wanted to center um, these areas. Um, first, racial equity, enabling people to stay in their neighborhoods and not being pushed out where they're disconnected from their social networks, um, making culturally competent services available, including uh, post housing. Uh, we want a wide array of programs that respond to diverse needs. I know we heard that with the community engagement presentation. We can't just rely on cookie cutter models, um, providing supports that it will ensure success, increasing permanent housing opportunities of all kinds. Um, we want permanent housing and system flow. We want an increase uh, to permanent housing opportunities of all kinds. And then finally, we want to bring resources to scale, which means increasing permanent housing opportunities of all kinds. Next slide. So as it stands right now, we know we have a budget short, shortfall and there's some revenue uncertainty as we heard from the controller's office and our other departments earlier. Um, <clears throat> the question we have is how will we know when FlexPool uh, reaches maximum capacity? Next slide. So in terms of our priorities and recommendations, we wanna recommend ongoing funding for women's flex pool. Extremely low income women without children have distinct ongoing needs that are unlikely to be met with medium term rapid rehousing subsidies. Um, this program meets the needs of underserved groups like older adult women, victims of domestic violence and others. We wanna recommend reprogramming unspent funding from FlexPool to site-based permanent housing, concerned that scattered site placements are being made outside of San Francisco and relocating households to places without established social support networks. It can make it very difficult for people to stabilize. And then of course our racial equity goal of keeping people in their neighborhoods. We all know the story of how our black community has been pushed out of San Francisco and we really wanna look at ways to remedy that. Next slide. Um, we want to recommend investments in the Latinx and LGBTQIA plus communities, adults and youth. Um, we see an overrepresentation in a point in time count. Um, the needs assessment and CE dashboard shows underrepresentation in housing match and placement. Um, we want to recommend adding shallow subsidies. A possible way is to stretch dollars to serve more households, and it's good for households with economic needs and how support service needs within the and and support service needs within the homeless population. Sorry about that, next slide. So we're gonna stop there and I wanna turn it to my colleagues um, if you wanna add anything to the permanent housing area. Just, um, just we're still waiting on the numbers of out of county placements. Um, and so that recommendation may change depending on what's, what the feedback is, I think, right? Yeah. Do you want me to do uh, mental health or do you want to do mental health? Um, I think we're going to wait on mental health um, for Michelle to, to cover that so we can just pause here. But oh, you wanted okay, to, um, did you want to, you said you wanted to hear from, I'm sorry, I missed the last point. Of oh, oh, just I said that we're we're waiting for our next liaison, mental, behavioral health, I mean, uh, housing liaison meeting to find out the proportion of people who um, were placed out of county with the, um, with the short-term and long-term uh, private market subsidies. And so that recommendation could change depending on, you know, if we find that oh, there's a lot of placements in, in county and it's, that, that, would, that yeah. would shift that, yeah. And we did get positive feedback, I feel like, from the department on 
the finding of units, that that's going really well, and people are able to find housing within 90 days. So that was another thing we were worried about. Um, and so there is, you know, there is, I think, a lot of positive elements of FlexPool. Yeah, so we, once we find out about the out-of-county thing. Yes. Any, uh, Member Catalano, did you have? I just, I actually have a question maybe for Member Friedenbach, which is with regard to the women's flex pool, I, I know, I believe we, the, the, based on the use of one-time funds, it had been a proposal to make it a, the departments had proposed making it a rapid rehousing, and then we discussed having it be an ongoing subsidy. Yeah. And um, one of the things the departments had said was that, okay, of course, women could be served in the, in the broader flex pool, but I was just thinking about the comments that we heard um, and um, the interviews and community engagement that having a women's only flex pool could, was the thinking there's also a, 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 a gender responsive provider than that is running that flex pool model. So it's not just the vouchers, it's actually a different sort of model providing services with the flex pool as well. Yeah, I, yeah, I think that's right. And I think trying to, um, there's also you know some thinking around um, and some of the women's providers around um, even using flex pool subsidies in a situation where they have many units in the same building um, because a lot of the women have created community among themselves and so they'd be able to live together. So just that kind of thoughtful mm -hmm. uh, thoughtfulness around how to how to do that. Yeah, it's, and there is a lot of older women that don't want to live alone. So mm -hmm. uh, being able to have those already knowing the working with the community really well and be able to set up shared housing situations um yeah there's just a lot of a lot of things there yeah thank you for that thank you i i want to be able to give our um our mental behavioral health uh, liaison the opportunity to to present their um, priorities and so they are unable to join us today so we'll circle back um, to that area, but um, just want to thank all of our liaisons for all of the hard work and the continued hard work of meeting with the departments and really looking at our investment plans, looking at everything that we've been doing to this point, as well as our needs assessment to really make some really thoughtful um, recommendations in terms of what our priorities are um, for this year. Um, I know that one thing we did highlight is that, and I know this was also highlighted by Director Simmons, is that you know we did have a, a sizable reserve and there's been a number of things that have not already got out the door and we really want to try as much as possible to preserve what we have and to not um, make cuts, but to kind of shift around. And I, I don't forget the word that we use, uh, Jesse. I think it's repurposing or rebalancing um, sort of the funds as opposed to making um, the reductions given that we have um, had a significant reserve. So um, with that, I will go to public comment. Secretary Hum. Members of the public who wish to provide public comment in person, please come up to the podium now. For the record, there are no in-person public comments. Members of the public who wish to provide public over the phone, please call 415-655-0001, access code 2495-548-4530. The password is 1234. If you haven't already done so, please dial star three to line up to speak. A system prompt will indicate you have raised your hand. Please wait until the system indicates you have been unmuted and you may begin your comments. Please note that you have two minutes. Moderator, do we have any public comments on the phone? There are no public comments. Okay, thank you, Secretary Hom, and I'll just turn back to the committee before we move to future agenda items. Is there anything else that um, you would like to say? Yeah, ju just one thing. I just wanted to give a shout out to Director Noel Simmons, who's gonna be retiring soon. Oh. Um, yeah, or <laughs> 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 leaving, retiring, I don't know. Um, but uh, 
you know, many of us have worked with her for a long time at Human Service Agency, and, and she took on this huge, very challenging role at the homeless department, and I think um, has just a lot of hard skills on how to navigate all this stuff and has been kind of a steady ship in a lot of tumultuous waters. So um, really appreciate all your service. Wow. Yeah. We have, a, we have some time, right, <laughs> Director Simmons, before you. Yeah. <laughs> Great, so hopefully we have you for a few more of our, our meetings and as we get through this budget process. But yes, just wanna echo the comments of uh, Member Friedenbach. We are just so thankful uh, for your service. And um, yes, continue to, looking forward to continue working with you. Thank you. All right, this time we'll go to um, future agenda items. Is there any items for the future? <laughs> All right, seeing none, is there a motion to adjourn? I'll move to adjourn. It's been moved by Member Friedenbach. Is there a second? I can second that. Oh, we're. Uh, yes, we do, since this is as an agenda item. So I will go ahead and do that now. Is that okay? Okay, Chair? perfect. Great, yeah. thanks. Member of the public who wish to buy public comment in person, please line up to the podium now. For the record, there are no in person public comments. Members of the public who wish to provide phone public comment, please call 415 655. 0001 access code 2495548 the password is 1234 if you haven't already done so please dial star 3 to line up to speak a system prompt will indicate you have raised your hand please wait until the system indicates you have been unmuted and you may begin your comments please note they do have two minutes moderator do we have any public comments on the phone there are no public comments on the phone Thank you, Secretary Hom. So we have a motion and a second to adjourn, and I know that we do not have forms, so we can't take a vote, so I think we are just adjourned. So it is, uh, what time is it now? It is 11.44. 11.44, so we are adjourned at 11.44 a.m. Thank you, everyone. Thank you, everyone. Thank you.